Hello, I'm Phelan McAleer. And I'm Anne McElhenney. And welcome to the Harvey Weinstein Trial Unfiltered podcast. Yeah. We're on day five of the Harvey Weinstein Trial. Uh, it's supposed to be a short day today, right, Phil? Yes, yes. And this, is, this podcast reenacts the most dramatic testimony from each day uh, with veteran Hollywood actors. Verbatim. Verbatim. You know, using the actual words that were used. Mm-hmm. So short day, yes, the jury member had an appointment. The trial was supposed to end at 3 p.m., However, it actually ended just after 11 a.m., which everyone was pretty surprised by. I think the judge was even surprised. But it was an interesting day. We had uh, the evidence from Elizabeth Entine, who, among many things she said, she also uh, outlined how this Harvey Weinstein, a 300-pound movie producer, was uh, who's allegedly a sexual predator, was frightened to death of a tiny chihuahua. The tiny chihuahua, which we've been hearing about a little bit, and we saw photographs of twice today, yes. um, or tw- excuse me, twice over the last few days, uh, Peanut. Peanut yes. is the name we'll, of the we'll, chihuahua. We'll come back to Peanut. Um, Elizabeth Entine is shared an apartment with Miriam Haley. Miriam Haley, of course, you'll remember, is the is the woman who gave evidence yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, but first, let's maybe just remind everyone what this trial is all about. Yes. So in a trial that, you know, this this is the trial that basically launched the Me Too movement. Um, you have mu- movie producer Harvey Weinstein faces two charges of rape and one of a criminal sex act concerning two separate women. And Miriam Haley is one of them. Exactly. He also faces two charges of predatory sexual assault, which carry a possible life sentence. So the prosecutors are arguing that Weinstein is a predator, has had a pattern. Um, so on top of Miriam Haley and another accuser, they're calling four other witnesses, and we've already had one of those, Annabella Sigora, uh, the actress. Um, and they say they're victims and they prove a pattern of behavior. And they're known as Molno witnesses. And mm-hmm. We'll talk about Molino witnesses later on because we're going to have a Molino witness. Yeah, we're hearing a lot about Molino witnesses. We're going to have one in, in tomorrow's podcast, in exactly. tomorrow's trial. So we'll hear about that then. So. We heard today from Elizabeth Enton. She was the flatmate of Miriam Haley uh, at the Sixth Avenue and Sixth uh, Street and Avenue B apartment during the 2006 summer when Miriam Haley says she was raped and sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. And it was interesting today. I think Miss Entine really, to me, stood out, actually. Um, she bounded into the court. Yes. She had this enthusiasm to her that I hadn't seen in any of the witnesses we've seen so far. She seemed genuinely happy to be there. Um, she seemed to enjoy the experience. She beamed at the prosecution yes. when she when she arrived in first. Then subsequently, she actually got very combative mm. with, with the defence. Um, Harvey Weinstein still looking pretty awful, actually. Um, yeah. But he has definitely got a better walker. I've got a relative who has a walker who said never in her, in her wildest has she seen the state yes. of the first walker yet but he's got a better walker now the first walker was basically 1950s British National Health Service correct really but this one that. now it's wheels and all that so he actually he whizzed on oh, in there is, this morning yeah, he comes in kind of qu- quite fast actually Ryan. but he's very engaged isn't he Phil yes. he's kind of very engaged he talks a lot he takes a lot of notes he looks at, he looks back and forth from his lawyer to the when they're questioning the witness he looks back and forth back and forth so you know he's interested he's engaged I suppose he should be. So the prosecution started today by asking Miss Entine about herself. Oh, she was very keen to tell us about herself. No. Well, there were, by the way, I mean, I, you know, again, I don't, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know exactly why this is done, but they were asking her like things she liked to do when she was a child. Again, I have no idea what that's about, but anyway, that she liked playing with dolls, that she loved art, fashion, school plays. She was on the swim, swim team. team. Yeah, which is, you know, what relevance that has. I don't know. She is the owner, as we said already, she is the owner of this pet chihuahua called Peanut. Yes. And we were entertained, as I said again, with a picture of Peanut. This is the second day we've seen a picture. And pic- I was envious of her. She lives between Brooklyn and Santa Monica. Fal- she- Salem has always wanted to divide his time between two places. So, yes, she's dividing her time between Brooklyn and Santa Monica. She's a fashion stylist, as is selling a startup and has started a startup and... 
She's, you know, she's working with fashion designers and well, actually, she was asked about the startup and she said, I've done one working with emerging fashion designers, emerging fashion, emerging fashion designers and working with beauty in the zero waste space. So that's one to think about. And she's writing a book. There was a questioning about the book at one point and the book is called WTF Just Happened. A sciencey girl explores grief, healing and evidence of the afterlife. I think I think you could describe Miss Enton as woke. I, I got that impression. You know, she, she, you know, working with beauty in the zero waste space. And she was very, you know, there was a kind of um, I, I know everything feeling of her. I, I got that. I think she gave a couple of gratuitous answers. You know, yes. she she sort of um, politicized things a little bit a few times and got pushed back on by the defense. But we're going to start today by hearing the prosecution, Megan Hast, ADA Megan Hast, asking Miss Entine about, you know, what happened in, in the summer of 2006. So let, let's hear that right now. Directing your attention to the summer of 2006, where were you living at that time? 6th Street and Avenue B. So, in People's Exhibit 68, when you got to the end of that hallway, you'd have to make a right to get to this hallway? Yes. Do you recall which door in this photograph was your apartment back in the summer of 2006? I'm 90% sure it is the one facing, not the one to the left. Were you working at that time? Yes, I was. What were you doing? I was assisting fashion stylists. Did that job require you to travel some during that summer? Frequently, yes. Were you living in the summer of 2006 in that apartment alone or with someone else? With a roommate. Who was that? Miriam. Miriam Halle. How did that roommate situation come about? We had common friends and knew each other socially. How long had you known Miriam Halle at that point? Maybe like six months. Maybe not very well, just as an acquaintance. During the time you lived together in that East Village apartment in the summer of 2006, did you become close with Miriam Halle? Very much, yes. Can you describe your relationship with Miriam Halle during that time period where you were living together in that East Village apartment? We became very good friends. We would stay up late talking, went to events and parties together, come home from work, you know, talk about our lives. Did you or Miriam have any pets living in the apartment? We did, a dog and a cat. I'm going to show you what is in evidence as People's Exhibit 70. Do you recognize who is in that photograph? Very much. That is Peanut. Who is Peanut? Peanut was my dog. By the way, was Peanut the type of dog who would try to escape the minute you left the door open? She never did with me. Do you recall what Miriam was doing professionally when she was living with you, came to live with you in the apartment? Yes, she was working for Project Runway. Were you aware of who the producer of Project Runway was at that time? Yes, Harvey Weinstein. Did you know who Harvey Weinstein was back then? I had heard of him. In what context? I knew he did stuff in films. Did there come a time that you met Harvey Weinstein? Yes. Do you recall where that was? Cipriani. Do you recall when that was? Late spring, early summer of 2006. Do you recall why you had gone to Cipriani? I accompanied Miriam to an event. Do you recall what that event was? I believe it was related to Project Runway. I know it was work-related, but I cannot recall the details. Did you go with anyone else besides Miriam? No. Can you describe the interaction you recall with Harvey Weinstein at that time? Yes. He came up and shook my hand. I was politely introduced, and he put his arm around Miriam, his hand, like, on her stomach, and kind of pulled her to him and said... This is the hottest woman I know. Did you look at what Miriam's reaction was to that? I did. 
Can you describe that? She was trying to be very polite, and I felt a little bit mitigating and very uncomfortable. Now, directing your attention to shortly, withdrawn. Did you leave Cipriani alone or with somebody? With Miriam. Did you have any further contact with Harvey Weinstein while you were at Cipriani? No. Now, directing your attention to shortly after what you described at Cipriani, did Miriam call you while you were away for work? She did. Without getting into that conversation, did she confide in you about an interaction she had with Harvey Weinstein? Yes, she did. Was it odd for her to call you like that while you were away for work? Yes. Do you recall sort of the tenor of that conversation? Yes. Can you describe that? Yes, she was a little bit shaken and nervous. Now, directing your attention to a week or so after that conversation, did Miriam confide in you about a second interaction she had with Harvey Weinstein? She certainly did. Where were you at that point? I was in my bedroom. Did you get the sense the interaction had just happened or happened recently? Yes. And do you recall what you were doing in your bedroom at that time? I was lying in bed. I do not remember specifically, probably reading. Can you describe what you recall about when Miriam came into your bedroom? She was standing in the doorway. Normally, she would flop on my bed and talk. She was very nervous. She was pacing. She seemed anxious. And she began to talk to me and seemed very not the typical comfortable way we normally spoke among each other. Was it odd for her to come into your room like that? It was odd for her to not completely come in my room and stand sort of at my doorway pacing. What was the substance of that conversation? She told me, and one thing that stood out was the conversation was kind of not linear. She seemed very nervous, and she said that she had gone to the apartment of Harvey Weinstein, and she assumed it was work-related. And he had—she came in, and he started rubbing her shoulders, kissing her, and she said, no, no, and then he wouldn't stop. And she said— I'm on my period, and he said, I don't care, at which point he threw her down, and she was still saying stop. And he pulled off her underwear, pulled out her tampon, and went down on her while she was saying no. What was your reaction to what Miriam told you? I said, Miriam, that sounds like rape. And what, if anything, did you advise her to do? I said, why don't you call a lawyer? What was her reaction to that? She seemed still just very distraught and just kind of shaking and walked away and didn't really want to pursue it or talk about it and kind of felt like she could not really talk and not very present. Did you push it any further? Just that second time when I said, are you sure you don't want to call a lawyer? But after that, I did not feel it was right to keep pushing. You mentioned a second time. When was that second time that you had asked her again, are you sure you don't want to call a lawyer? That same night when she was kind of standing there and still just didn't seem very composed and not very herself. Why did you not push it any further? I didn't really feel it was my place or right. I, I do not feel like I could take over for how, you know, someone else deals with rape. Did you notice any changes in Miriam following that conversation? Yes. Can you describe that? When I would come home from work before, we would always laugh and talk and, you know, share with each other what plans we had with our friends and want to join each other. She was much more withdrawn. She was always before very vital and giggly. She seemed more nervous, significantly less vital. Spent a lot more time in her room. No further questions. That was the ending of the questioning of Elizabeth Anton. Um... You know, I think she gave a quite a good 
testimony. Um, that was the end of the questioning by the prosecutor, Megan Haas. She was very open and answered questions even that she wasn't asked. Remains to see, be seen what, how the jury will react to her. And, you know, I think before we go on, and because this was a short day, we wanted to catch up with some things maybe that we hadn't told people who are listening to the podcast. And by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you like this podcast, please help us. Uh, this costs money, um, but we love doing it. And we've had overwhelmingly positive responses to any from anyone who's listened to this podcast. So we need to keep going uh, to help support this podcast. Go to the unreportedstorysociety.com. That's the unreportedstorysociety.com. Give what you can to make sure that this can go ahead. And just so, to know, and just to know, by the way, that that's a 501c3 and so that anything that you give will be tax deductible. So we wanted to talk about one of the things, as you said, that we neglected talking about was the makeup of the jury. So the jury is made up of I'm just going to give the quick list here and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the jury. Uh, it's six white men. Mm -hmm. uh, the seventh juror is a black man. Then there are five women. Two of those five women are white. And then the three alternate jurors, um, a white man, a Hispanic woman and a black woman. Um, you know, and, and when they were choosing the, the jury, yeah. hundreds of panelists were, you yeah. know, people, loads and loads of people uh, were, so, yeah. were called. Mean, but a lot of them said, like, from the get go, they arrived and they said, I can't be fair. And they were dismissed. And of course, they were a lot of them were saying, I can't be fair because they knew that that was a great way of getting out of being on the jury. Right. In in their defense, Weinstein defense team did ask for the trial to be moved out of Manhattan. They said, because it's almost impossible to find a jury that either hasn't read about the about the, the charges or the case or, ha or have an opinion on it or know somebody who knows somebody. And that was the problem. You know, to be fair, a lot of people said, I can't be fair. Maybe they were trying to get out of the jury. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them, there was people who said, I can't be fair. I saw Mr. Weinstein shout at somebody on the phone. Uh, my friend had a, an incident with him in a hotel room. My friend knows this. My friend had an, a, had a book deal with him. I, I came to the opening day of the, the jury selection and 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 left and thinking that most jury selection is boring. This shows you what this trial is like. It was not boring. Yeah, Gigi no. Hadid turned up. <laughs> there was protests. There was there was just craziness. And there was there was accusations of racism that uh, the prosecution said that the defense was trying to exclude white women from the jury. And there are very few white women on the jury. I mean, it's, it's a mixed bunch. And the three alternate jurors, they, they're only there if in case someone gets sick. Or so, is unable to continue. And so to look at the kind of, as you said, it's kind of diverse, actually. And I think um, a point that uh, the defense made was that it didn't, you know, they didn't care about the, the race or ethnicity of of the of the people. But, they, you know, that they wanted a diverse group of people who said that they could be fair. I think they're actually they're the, the thing, common sense and fairness. Mm -hmm. But here's here's who they've ended up with, you know, in terms of jobs and stuff and background. They've got a public housing worker. They have an Upper East Side businessman. They have an East Harlem security guard. They have the managing partner of an investment firm. They have a banking executive. They have a married father of two. Um, they have the co-founder of a startup. They have a real estate tax accountant. They have a lawyer whose sister is a federal prosecutor in Chicago. And one of the two white women on the jury, oh, this is an interesting one actually, is a writer who has an upcoming novel that describes relations between young women 
and predatory old men. And the defense lawyers, this became a big drama, right? So there's only a number of challenges that you can Mm -hmm. have. And they had ran out of them. But they argued that she should not be allowed to serve because she had not revealed details about her book when she filled out the questionnaire. So when people come to be on the jury, they have to fill out a questionnaire. And so she hadn't revealed those details about the book. And I do think, you know, it's a bit um, it's a bit unfair. And actually, Damon Sharonis at the time said that she was not forthcoming about the book, about the subject matter of the book, um, that the book was uh, the subject matter of the book was predatory older men uh, and that she basically lied under oath, he said, Um but the prosecutors noted that she had said on her form that she was a novelist yeah. and the defense asked for a mistrial over her inclusion. Um, but Justice Burke denied that motion. The word on the street, uh, you know, among the journalists was that she was going to be taken off the jury. And that seemed to be the case because there was an exchange between Sharonis Weinstein's defense lawyer and the judge. And the judge says, don't go there. You know, you know what's going on. And everyone thought, oh, that means she's going to be secret. She's still there. Maybe they've all agreed she's an alt- she's an alternate and maybe they've all agreed that she will not be chosen as an alternate, but they're just not going to take her off because I think if they take her off, it means a mistrial. They have to go back and start the whole thing again. So they decided to move on. So then we we had Donna Rotuno, um, you know, do a cross examination of Liz Enton, um, who, again, just to remind you, is uh, the, the flatmate, the girl who um, shared an apartment with Miriam Haley back in July of 2006 when these the alleged rape happened. So, you know, so Liz Enton, as I said, you know, she bounded into the court and all of that. And then um, when Donna Rotuno got a chance to talk to her, you know, one of the interesting parts of that cross is how. Elizabeth Enton had reacted when she was told of this alleged assault. She asked Miriam, you know, you should you should call a lawyer now, not the police or whatever. Um, and she claimed not to know that that was not normal. Yeah. She claimed to not know that what you normally do when a crime occurs is, phone, you yes. know, you phone the cops yes. first, not a lawyer. Yes. But let's take well, a listen. And this is a woman who started all these startups, is writing a book and is super confident, et cetera, et cetera. And as an undergrad, she reminded people. Um, so this Let's let's take a listen. This is Donna Rotano, who's the defense lawyer for Eliz- for Harvey Weinstein, questioning uh, Elizabeth Enton, uh, who was a flatmate. And don't forget, these are actors reenacting verbatim testimony from the court. This is word for word from the court. Nothing added, nothing subtracted. It's what we heard today. It's very dramatic. So let's have a listen. Let's go back for a minute to that period of time where she's living with you. Now, you say that you remember a day where she came to your door and she was pacing around. Is that right? Very clearly, yes. Do you remember the date that happened? No. Do you remember what time of year it was? I believe it was the summer. But you are not sure? I'm 99% sure, yes. When she was standing in your doorway, do you remember what time of day it was? It was the evening after work. Right after work? I don't remember exactly. So how long had you been home before Miriam came to talk to you? A couple of hours. It was dark out and it was summer. And did she come back from work too? I don't know where she had come from. And when she gave you this account that you just told the jury, did you ask her when did this happen? Not that I remember. And she starts explaining this situation that you described as rape, correct? And she... Yes. And you told her to call a lawyer, correct? Very correct. And you didn't tell her to call the police? No. And the reason you told her to call a lawyer was because you were thinking she should sue Mr. Weinstein, correct? I was thinking, as any woman should, in the case of sexual assault, they should stick up for themselves. With a lawsuit? With a criminal prosecution that everyone is entitled to have an attorney for. But you know you have to call the police to do that, correct? No, I didn't know that. 
So, you know, Phelan, I thought this was super bizarre. I mean, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think you need to have actually gone to college or any anything, as you as you just pointed out prior mm-hmm. to us hearing that last um, set of uh, question and answers. Um, I don't think you need to have much education to know that if you if you're aware of a crime or you know that, you know, when a crime has occurred and you're like in proximity to a mm-hmm. crime that's occurred, you, the thing to do, the first thing to always do is you call the cops. They're, they're the first people you call. Yeah. You don't call anyone else. And uh, I thought that was extremely bizarre, you know, um, and I thought the defense um you know did did very well there um and you know th- th- and then the defense went on and, and continued to do well today actually because then they went on to ask elizabeth enton if she knew about all the contact mm-hmm. that miriam haley had with uh, harvey weinstein after the assault yes. um and enton testified that miriam didn't tell her anything about yes. all the contact including having the driver who drove her the night of the assault drive her the very next day to the airport to go to L.A. on a plane ticket bought by Weinstein. Let's listen to this exchange, starting with Donna Rattuno asking about the driver. Did you know that the next day after she claims this happens, she got in a car with a driver that Mr. Weinstein sent to take her to the airport? I did not know that after it happened, she got in the car with a driver. And you didn't know that the day after she claims it happened, she went on a flight to Los Angeles that he paid for? I do not know that after it happened, she took a plane. Do you remember that she was gone for a period of time in July, where she went to L.A. to visit her friend who was having a baby? I don't remember that. We both were traveling frequently. So you do not remember July 11th to July 26th, she went to L.A.? I don't remember that. And do you remember her telling you that Harvey Weinstein bought her a ticket to go to Los Angeles? I don't remember that. And do you remember her telling you when she was in Los Angeles, she was invited to a premiere of a movie that Harvey Weinstein was having? I don't remember that. Do you remember her telling you that on July 26, when she came back from Los Angeles, California, that she went and met Mr. Weinstein and had sex with him in a hotel? No, I never heard her say anything about consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein. Did you know when you were in London after she had this conversation with you at your doorway where she was pacing around, she was making arrangements to meet Harvey Weinstein? I did not know that. Did you know at any point in time when you were in London with Miss Halei, did she tell you I'm trying to send an email to Mr. Weinstein? No. The day started off with a very convincing account of of an attack, but then Elizabeth Anton told Donna Rotano, Weinstein's lawyer, no, she didn't know that Miriam Haley had all these contacts. Miriam Haley has admitted having had consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein after he allegedly sexually assaulted her and taking all these gifts and taking all these flights. And asking for the flight. She told Elizabeth Anton, she told her about the attack, but she didn't tell her about any of these contacts. She didn't say that when she was in London, she was chasing around trying to get in touch with Harvey Weinstein. It was so much that for someone so smart and so confident, so self-assured, and she had such a memory of everything, she doesn't seem to know vital details that might have put this whole attack in context. Well, I think the, I think the, I think the point is that actually Miriam, you know, didn't tell her. Yes. That she didn't tell her any effect that she, so mm-hmm. that she had made this very selective uh, version of the story, yes. leaving out all these kind of what I think, obviously, that are very salient, important points. Mm-hmm. Another thing that was very interesting that the defence challenged in the story and that we're, we're going to hear in a moment is the whole story of Harvey Weinstein 
badgering Miriam Haley to go to Paris with him. And we'd heard a lot about that. There's a yes. lot of talk about yes. that he went to the flat where she lived with um, Elizabeth Enton, that he badgered her, like he went on and on and on about, uh, you know, coming to Paris, going to Paris with him, whatever. And there was the Did moment. He, yes, where, he barged in. And he the... barged in. And, and Peanut, by the way, was involved in oh, that sorry. particular exchange Peanut because Peanut, the Chihuahua, was upset and was barking. And apparently. Funny, we didn't know that yesterday. That only emerged today. So Miriam Haley didn't tell court that yesterday. She said he didn't want to go because uh, she didn't want to be alone with him. As this goes on, we'll, we'll see how how these other reasons came out. Yeah, exactly. And what, and what we're going to hear now is there's another possible reason, by the way, why she didn't uh, want to go to Paris. You and I discussed this yesterday, Phelan, and both being Irish and knowing a little bit mm-hmm. about visas and coming through immigration and stuff. Yes. We know a bit about this. So it was interesting today. I felt that that came up a little bit. And we're just going to hear that. The defense asked, yes. was it possible there was another reason why someone who had was only working illegally. was working illegally, only had um, a visitor's visa, a tourist visa. Uh, a tourist visa wouldn't go to Paris, which would involve coming back again through, to, immigration. through immigration. So let's listen to this. And did your friend ever tell you that Mr. Weinstein wanted to take her to Paris? Which friend? Miriam? Yes. No. Oh, yes. Yes, she did. She did. She did. So she told you that he wanted to invite her to Paris. Correct. And pay for her to go? Correct. But you knew the reason she did not go was because she had a visa issue, correct? I did not know why. Did you know she had a visa issue? Yes. She had a visa issue because she was working in the United States when she did not legally have the right to do so, correct? I didn't know her legality. I knew she was looking for legal work. That was a struggle. So that all sounds very familiar to you and I, Phil, being Irish, you know. So We know that if you're Irish and you're working here illegally, you don't go home for your father's funeral. You don't go home for a wedding because coming back through immigration is a nightmare and the chances you've been caught are very, very high. Irish people used to go back and come back on a, a passport with their name in Irish or they'd get a British passport or something. But, you know, eventually those options run out and the, and the immigration just gets more and more computerized and, and smarter. And and they're super aggressive, by the way, and Americans probably don't know this. I mean, we, Phelan and I have had that experience. We had our bags taken off one time yes. in Dublin. You know, uh, so people who do know about it know about it. You know what I mean? Yes. And, it, and it's well known. And she would have known if I go to Paris with this guy, I'm going to have to come back, get get face those questions and potentially say some make a mistake, yes. by the way, where they'll never forget and they'll yes. never forgive. So it was very serious and there's no doubt about it that it would have had an impact on on her on her decision. The defense went on then, right, Phelan, to yes. talk about um, to ask. This is very funny. I mean, this is an amazing one. This is an to, interesting to, to one. To me, to me, this is the most unbelievable part of Miss Enton's evidence today. It just did not strike me as credible. So the defense asked her, you know, that Miriam Haley give all these interviews to MSNBC, to Megan Kelly, all these places. Good morning, this and good morning, that. And she said, did you listen to it? Because uh, you know, they wanted to check. I think they wanted to check if they'd compared stories, if she was repeating the same story, because her story was rather similar. And she says, no, no, I didn't. I didn't listen to anything. I saw the interviews. I scrolled down and I saw them, but I didn't listen to anything she said. And to me, I'm going, one of the incidents happened in your apartment. You know, your dog was involved. You were involved. You know, you were. Would you perfect. not even just as like a human curiosity thing wanted, wanted, you well, know. Maybe she misrepresented it. Maybe she got it right. Maybe she got it wrong. Maybe your name was mentioned. You know, you, you know, would you get phone calls from your friends? All these things. I mean, you were there. You know, you were closely involved. You were a good friend of this woman at this time. Human nature 
just even self-preservation would mean you would listen to the interviews. She claims she didn't. It seemed a bit of a stretch to imagine that she hadn't. Yes. But but and just something I just noticed there to, to, to remind people as well, by the way, that we, we keep on saying Miriam Haley and uh, she also sometimes gets called Mimi. Um, but she's Miriam Haley who, who, who we're referring to and you're, and she's going to get called uh, Mimi in the next set of yes. questions. So this is here. Donna Rotono, Weinstein's defense, one of Weinstein's many defense attorneys uh, questioning Elizabeth Enton. Uh, Mimi or Miriam Haley's uh, a part, uh, flatmate. This is verbatim testimony. Questioning her about her lack of curiosity yes. about uh, the, the telling of this story verbatim on the media. Verbatim testimony read by uh, actors. So let's listen. Now, you knew through the media that Mimi had gone on and did some interviews on some talk shows, correct? Briefly, I didn't delve into them. You knew she went on Megyn Kelly? I didn't know specifically. Did you know she went on MSNBC? I saw clips I'd seen scrolling through. She was on media. I did not pursue them, and I don't remember which ones, nor did I pay attention. Are you telling this jury you were living with a woman you claim was your friend? Was my friend. And she's on TV? Yes. Telling a story? Yes. That you knew something about? Yes. And you did not listen? I did not listen because I knew the story, and I have multiple friends that have been on TV. It is not that... It was not that that stands out. I knew her story already, and I didn't necessarily want to have all the emotional buildup of it again. So after we heard from Miss Enton and, 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 you know, she was then dismissed, there was some legal argument about the admissibility of photos. And there's been a lot of ta- talk in the trial about photos. And there's kind of two parts to that. The first reason, actually, that's being used for using photos. What, yeah, what well, are they for? I mean, we've talked about this before, but it's, you know, it's, it's a very bizarre part of the prosecution strategy and, uh, you know, the issue really going out with him, uh, rape argument uh, that Harvey Weinstein is so gross and so badly dressed and so sloppy that these young, pretty women, young enough to be his daughter, wouldn't uh, have sex with them any other consensually. Therefore, it has to be rape. I mean, bizarre as that may sound, it pretty much said it. I, I, th- I thought it was amazing. But to be fair, uh, Donna Rotano today really took them on on it and said this is unacceptable. You know, this this has been part of their strategy. It's ridiculous. Well, it's kind of funny, actually, because it's like, I mean, it's really weird when you think about it and the times we're living in and stuff. You know, the idea that the that the, that the prosecution would be using basically body shaming That's right. against Harvey Weinstein and getting away with it is extraordinary. The second reason for using photographs, and we're going to hear from Donna Rotono on this one, and, and she really did get very irate and very upset, was that the prosecution wanted to show photos of Harvey Weinstein Weinstein, excuse me, with Al Gore, with Hillary Clinton, with Bill Clinton, and in fact, in in, in one instance also with the Queen of England, to show how powerful he was mm-hmm. in comparison with these very weak um, alleged victims. You know, then Donna Rotuno, she was having none of it. Yes. Like she was not going to have and anything. About, like she really was very cross. But I thought this was a great moment. It's actually. a great moment, and actually, it's it's very tight as well. But boy, does it sum up both that power uh, theory. That kind of bogus power theory, because as Damon Sharonis has pointed out, the idea that the powerful person has power over the weak person, when the weak person, you know, has sex with this powerful person, they they might get something out of it too. It's a very asymmetrical way of looking at it. But also she goes into this whole body shaming thing as well. It's a very short piece, but boy, it packs a punch. Let's hear it. Judge, just in response to what Ms. Aluzi continues to put forth before this court, It is insulting to continue to say that women can't make choices because somebody is maybe powerful. 
His power had nothing to do with these women's decision to see and seek and want to be a part of Harvey Weinstein's world. So this notion that he doesn't look right or he is too large or his clothes don't look right, it is insulting. And I think the record needs to be clear about the fact that there is an attempt to continue to berate Mr. Weinstein about who he was as a person. And that's not what this trial is about. There was a very interesting exchange after that when the defense counsel asked Miss Anton about Miss Haley's boyfriend who no one knew she had a boyfriend. And we hadn't heard about a boyfriend and yesterday. So they were questioning her yesterday. She never mentioned she had a boyfriend at the time of the sexual assaults, at the time of the alleged, you know, all, all, all everything that happened. She was traveling around. She was traveling around. She was being flown around the world by Harvey Weinstein and she had a boyfriend. And she never mentioned she had a boyfriend during, during evidence. And it was only yesterday, very late, the defense said they got the, her grand jury transcripts and there she said she had a boyfriend. And so they asked, they were only able to ask Miss Enton about the boyfriend. They thought it was, there was all sorts of objections. Why wow, was objections? But no, the defense, fair enough. They, they said it's very, very relevant as to the state of mind of Miss Haley, because if you have a boyfriend and you have sex with someone, you might want to relabel it as a sexual assault uh, to, to placate your boyfriend or to placate friends who may disapprove of you having such a relationship. And actually, one of the things that was exactly that, um, and it was Mr. Sharonis um, uh, for the for the for the defense, uh, who was really irate about all of this, you know, where he said, yeah, actually, you know what? It's really super, super relevant. Mm -hmm. And he even ended like that. And he had a big tirade. He ended that tirade by saying even Dr. Viv might agree with that. Yes. You know, with the relevance of it. And the prosecution were trying Dr. to say Dr. Ziv was the uh, was the forensic psychiatrist who was introduced early on by the prosecution to explain why women would continue in consensual relationships with uh, their alleged rapists. Uh, uh, you know, an interesting theory, but uh, I think Dr. Shronis was having a little dig at Dr. Ziv there. Yes. Or but, not Dr. Shronis, Mr. Shronis. So, yeah. um, and then finally, we want to update you all on um, Peanut the Chihuahua, who made, as I said, we, we as we mentioned, made another appearance today. Yes. And, uh, you so, know. So, yes, you'll remember yesterday that the prosecution went to huge lengths Proving that there was a tiny dog in the apartment, they show, showed a photograph of Peanut to the jury and to Miriam Haley, made her identify the dog and is that Peanut? And, you know, it's like a formal identification and even had the photo entered into the official court record as an exhibit. So today it became clear and uh, why we heard Miss Enton claim that she had a conversation with Miriam at the time Weinstein came to her apartment. You know, he burst through her door, inviting her to Paris. And according to Miss Haley, during her evidence, you know, Weinstein left because he, she, she said she wouldn't go to Paris and because she said he she he, she heard he had a terrible reputation for women with with women and that had deflated him and he left all sort of disappointed and deflated and that. However, Miss Enton said that Miss Haley had told her a different story in a later phone call that there was another reason why the uh, movie producer left the apartment. Suddenly, let's hear Miss Enton say the other explanation, the other uh, interesting explanation involving Peanut the Chihuahua. If you could describe for the jury the conversation you had with Miriam when she called. Great. Um, so she called me and she said something kind of weird happened. And she seemed a little disoriented. And she said that Harvey Weinstein showed up at her apartment and pushed his way into the apartment. And I was a little startled. And then I was like, what? And she said she just, you know, he pushed his way into the apartment. And then we started 
kind of laughing about it because apparently my dog, it is the small chihuahua, was chasing him around and he was a little frightened of the chihuahua. So we kind of got a laugh out of that. And he said, what is this thing? Get it away from me. And then we kind of diffused it with humor. We kind of saw it at the time prior to the rape. I didn't realize that it was going to go that far. We kind of saw it more kind of pathetic, older man trying really hard to hit on Miriam. So we kind of laughed it off. So there you are. Harvey Weinstein is frightened of a tiny dog. Yes. And I think we should point out, and it's kind of funny, that um, after Harvey Weinstein was leaving the courthouse um, yes. after this particular exchange, a reporter said, Questions. he asked him the very important question that was really on everyone's mind. Yes. Were you frightened by a chihuahua? And uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, responded, do I look like I would be frightened of a chihuahua? So we are looking forward to tomorrow, by the way. So who are we going to hear from tomorrow, Phil? We're going to hear from Tarali Wolf. Right, who is another so-called Molyneux witness. Weinstein has actually only been charged with three particular attacks on two women. There are four other women saying he attacked them, but he's not facing charges uh, from them. They're to bolster the case, actually, and to, sh- and to, to back up a charge of predatory behavior. And the predatory behavior charge is, is the most serious of all. That's a life sentence. The jury's not been asked to decide whether he's guilty or not guilty of these specific acts. And so... You know, Miss Wolf is a very important witness. You know, there's a lot of debate today about Miss Wolf and her medical records because uh, she alleged that Weinstein masturbated in front of her in a stairwell in the Cipriani's private club in Soho uh, sometime in 2004 or 2005. Another witness who can't remember the year of these of an assault. Uh, and but despite this, she went to visit him in his offices looking for a role in a movie where she claimed she was raped. However, the court heard from Damon Sharonis, uh, one of Weinstein's lawyers, and in my opinion, one of his best lawyers, actually, that they had seen correspondence from the district attorney to Miss Wolf's attorney. And it seemed that the district attorney said Miss Wolf had memory issues to the point, and this is a quote in one of the emails, that although the district attorney thinks she's credible, they don't think she, they can make a case because her memory is so fragmented. So then Mr. Sharona said, said, yeah, so he he then goes on to say that she was sent to a memory doctor and her memory improved so that she could be a witness against the defendant. So Megan Hast for the prosecution said the memory was only fragmented about the rape and that it was a psychologist and not a memory doctor who helped her remember the rape. However, um, Mr. Sharona demanded her full medical records from the visit to the psychologist or the memory doctor, whichever name, you know, they're going to be using, Um, not the redacted records because apparently the records that he was getting to look at were heavily redacted. So and the judge is going to look at these all the records overnight to see what the defence can and can't see before Miss Wills takes the stand. So that's, so that's going to be the next that's the next day we're going to have about Cipriani Social Club we are and it's very funny because I was walking home from the court the other day and I was looking at my phone you know using directions from the GPS uh-huh. on the phone and I suddenly saw and it just kind of it's kind of bringing everything to life because we're obviously we're actually in Soho lo- we're, we're, li- we're, we're staying in a place in Soho and we're living uh, and we're, the court is in, in downtown um, or whatever they call it is that what they call it down no they call it Lower Manhattan I think Lower Manhattan. the court is in Lower Manhattan so I'm walking along and suddenly I see on the on my phone Cipriani 
Cipriani's and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to walk well, past that place. No, I think we're going to have to go into Cipriani's. I think we may have to. But Maybe I we'll think, go to Cipriani's tomorrow night. Well, I think it could be quite expensive. So we have to think about that, which brings me to the point, by the way. <laughs> yes. um, and we're not asking you to buy us a drink at Cipriani's, by the way, but we would really appreciate anyone um, out there who could support us because we want to keep doing what we do. And the easiest way to do that is to go to Unreported Story Society and give what you can. We would be very, very appreciative That's of that. On, on and Unreported Story Society.com. Unreported Story Society.com and all donations are tax deductible. Um, and we'll see you tomorrow. So yes. tomorrow is Wednesday. But the, the podcast comes out, you know, on Thursday morning. In, yeah, yeah, well, in the middle of Thursday morning, yeah. you know, early Thursday morning. It's in basically people. in another 24 hours from when you're yes. hearing this, you will get the, you will get the next installment. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so we're looking forward to, to talking to you then. So but thank it's, you it's, so it's much. It's very interesting and we, we love doing what we do. So please help us and uh, keep us going. See you soon. Thank, thank you so you. much. Bye. Today's podcast is produced by Unreported Story Society and Magdalena Segeda and Raquel Lerman of Theatre Planners. Written and presented by Phelan McAleer and Anne McElhaney. Directed by Kif Scholl. Donna Rotunno is played by Caitlin Carlton. Elizabeth Enton is played by Alana Cohn. And Megan Hast is played by Kristen Connors. Edited by Mark Aramian. Engineered by Chris Gardner.